Musicians, we appreciate you all very much for leading us in worship this morning. Um, it's great to see you all here. I want to welcome anyone who's a visitor. We're glad you're here. I know I always say that. We're glad for all of you that are here regularly too, but uh, we're especially glad if you're visiting with us. We thank you for taking time out on this Lord's Day uh, to come and be with us here at Faith Bible Church this morning. It means a lot uh, to us that you're here with us, and we pray you'll be blessed uh, by your time here with us this morning. We're in a series right now, a topical series. We, we often at Faith Bible, we go through books of the Bible, but we kind of punctuate those studies a little bit with uh, some topical series. And we're in a topical series right now that uh, we've titled uh, Heavenly Rewards. And uh, if you've uh, not been here the last couple weeks, you might go back and, and listen to those messages or watch those online, and it'll uh, give you a little bit more information, kind of where we are in this study, about looking uh, what's going to happen when we get to heaven someday and are evaluated by the Lord and uh, the rewards that we'll receive. And I've titled this morning's message, uh, Your Final Exam. So if you'll take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, we're going to be in a lot of different verses this morning. Next week and the week after, we're going to look at a couple parables of Jesus. So we'll kind of park in a couple main passages, but to gather together the, the different thoughts this morning on uh, our final exam, we're going to look at a lot of different verses. But we'll start in 2 Corinthians 5 if you want to turn there. I want you all, if you will, this morning uh, with me to kind of ima imagine you're in a, a high school or a college classroom, and it's a, a sunny Friday afternoon, and you're, you're daydreaming uh, about the weekend, you know, kind of looking out the window and thinking about what's coming, and suddenly you're snapped back to reality as uh, the professor uh, says that, uh, reminds you that there's an exam scheduled, a major exam for a Monday. And uh, the students kind of let out a collective groan, you know, upon remembering that. But then everyone is elated when uh, the teacher, when the professor says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, though. I'm going to give you all the test questions today so you can study over the weekend. Well, now, if you're any kind of student at all, you're going to get your pencil out or your pen, and you're going to listen like crazy and write down exactly what uh, he or she says uh, to have those questions ahead of time. It's going to save you a lot of time. It's a massive advantage, and you know you're going to have no excuse for doing poorly on the big test. Well, Scripture tells us that there's a final exam on God's prophetic calendar for believers in Jesus Christ. Um, it's not a pop quiz. At least it shouldn't be for us. We know about it. Um, it's on, uh, it's on uh, the Lord's calendar. Um, it's in the syllabus. It's on the schedule. And God's even reminded us repeatedly in the Bible that this test is coming. So none of us ought to be caught by surprise when it arrives. And this final exam is described for us many places in the Bible, but especially here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's an event called the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema of Christ. Let me read about it here beginning in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. It says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or rewarded for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, so reads uh, God's inspired word. 
There's a final exam on the schedule. It's in the syllabus. It's planned. It's, it's already written down on God's uh, prophetic calendar, and it's coming for, e- for each one of us uh, who know the Lord Jesus. But not only has the Lord told us about the test, but like our professor in our imaginary story, uh, God has graciously given us the test questions uh, ahead of time. No believer should be left to wonder what's going to be on the test when we stand before the Lord someday. There's no mystery about what we need to know. God's told us what He's going to be looking for in our lives on that final evaluation. And let me just say this this morning, God wants us all to do well on the final test. God wants to reward us. In fact, God wants to reward us and wants us to do well more than we want that. God wants us to get an A. I mean, he wants us to, to pass with flying colors. So what I want to do this morning is present to you some of the things I've found over the years as I've searched the Scriptures to find what are the things that God wants us to be doing now that He's going to reward in the future. Now, this has always been a fascinating topic to me for whatever reason, this idea of the judgment seat of Christ and, and heavenly rewards. And so I've read a lot of books on this topic. I've studied Scripture on this and tried to find what are the things the Bible says God is going to reward us for. And so when you find the word reward or repay or recompense in the New Testament, you can go and read the passage and then you can find what is the underlying activity that's going to bring that reward. And so what I want to do this morning is look at some of these activities that are going to bring God's approval someday in heaven and bring rewards. Now, I found around 15 to 20 of these different activities that will bring rewards, but I've selected seven of these. Actually, last week we talked about a few of them when we talked about uh, what kind of rewards we're going to receive. We'll look at seven of them. You can see them there in your outline before you, and I pray you'll use that outline as a checklist in the days ahead to go through and check yourself, how am I doing in these various areas? So take the opportunity to measure our lives today against this checklist and to prepare uh, for our final exam in the life to come. Now, the first thing that I want to mention is how generous we are with our money. I know this is everybody's favorite topic, so I thought I'd get this one out of the way up front. But in many ways, this is the acid test of life. Uh, Jesus said, where your treasure is, is where your heart is. So we can try to fool ourselves in life and say, man, I love the Lord. I value Him. He's my greatest treasure in life. I love Him more than anything. But the Bible says your heart is where your treasure is, and your treasure is where your heart is. Those two things are not going to be in different places. What we do with our money reveals what we value and what we treasure in this life. It's a dead giveaway. Now, concerning money, we've all heard the old saying that you can't take it with you. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard the old saying, you you never see a a U-Haul behind a hearse. While it is true that you can't take it with you, Jesus actually says in Scripture, you can send it on ahead. Every person here on earth is a steward of the blessings of God. Everything we have belongs to Him. And I think that's really the the first thing we need to, to, to clearly understand. And I think a lot of Christians and a lot of people still struggle with that. That everything we are and everything we have belongs to God. It shouldn't be hard for us to realize that because when we die, we leave it behind. 
But there's something about us that we think we own it, and it's ours here on this earth. But everything we have belongs to God. During our stay here on earth, brief as it is, God gives each of us some of his assets to manage for him for a little while. And how we manage those assets is going to follow us to heaven. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. And then he said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He says, don't store up treasure on earth, store it up in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean you don't save money. It's, it's wise to save. Um, you, know, you go back to the book of Proverbs. There's all kinds of Proverbs about the look to the ant who, who saves up for, for, for tough times. What it's saying here is the focus of life is not to be on what we have now, but what we're sending on ahead. The main focus, really, if you read Matthew 6 there in that section where Jesus talks about money, is not renouncing earthly treasures so much as it's about accumulating uh, heavenly treasures. So Jesus says you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead and lay it up as treasure that will be rewarded. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 says this, instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now, I know a lot of you say, well, man, I'm not rich, so that applies to other people. If you've traveled around the world very much, especially to third world countries, you know this morning, I hope you know that you're rich. If you've been to a lot of those countries, you find people in our country that are poor and they're rich compared to people in other places. So every one of us here this morning would fit the biblical definition back in the first century of a person who's rich. Really, back then you were rich if you just had any disposable income. And certainly all of us uh, this morning here have at least some of that. So he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. One thing that happens to rich people, they can become prideful and bloated up and arrogant with, with what they have or to fix their, un, their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, I love that because it's balanced here. He says, God gives us stuff to enjoy. God's not a cosmic killjoy. He's not up there in heaven saying, boy, I hope they don't enjoy any of that bounty that I give to them. No, God wants us to enjoy the things he gives to us in this life, but he wants us to balance that with being generous. He says, uh, instruct him to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what is life indeed. So he says here, giving to those in need and giving to ministries will bring reward, but also our motivation has to be right. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how God cares about not only what we do, but why we do it. And if we give money to be seen by other people or to receive accolades or thanks or gratitude in some way, then uh, the, the reward won't be given. What did Jesus say? Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So when you give to the poor, notice he doesn't say if you give to the poor, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. What he's saying is if you're doing 
what you're doing, if you're giving money to get a, a applause from people, he says, you better enjoy that good round of applause because that's all you're going to get. You got your reward in full. You already received it. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What that means is the right hand in that day was the, the, the public hand. The, the left hand was more the private hand. And he's saying, don't sit around when you're giving money. Don't even let your own left hand know what you're doing. Don't sit around and think about it and kind of nurse it and think how great you are for what you're doing. And he says, do it in secret so that your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's reward for giving with a, a pure heart. Look, people today are looking for all kind of safe havens to put their money in. Stocks, bonds, treasuries, precious metals, real estate, all kinds of stuff. And while all of those, all of those investments have advantages on earth, depending on what the, the economic climate at the time may be, Jesus said, ultimately, there's only one safe place to invest, and that's in heaven. Whatever we invest there, it's recession-proof, it's inflation-proof, um, it's never going uh, to be decreased or corrupted in any way. So every one of us as believers are to share generously. I love uh, the way the old Baptist preacher Adrian Rogers put it. He said, don't give what's left, give what's right. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Don't give what's left. It's easy to give leftovers to God. Don't give God what's left. Give Him what's right. Give God the first. Adrian Rogers also said, don't give until it hurts, give until it feels good. And I like that because it ought to feel good to give and to be generous. Now, I know there's some people I've heard them say, well, you know, boy, if I ever won the lottery, if I ever struck it rich, I mean, if I ever had a rich relative give me a big inheritance, man, I would really give a lot to the Lord. Well, maybe, maybe not. The Bible says if you're not faithful with, with little, you're not going to be faithful with much. I like the old poem that says, it's not what you do with a million if riches should be your lot, but what you're doing now with the dollar and a quarter you got. In other words, what we have now, that really shows what we are. And we can say, oh, if I you know, got millions, here's what I'd do. You'd probably do the same thing with it with what you have now. So this is the testing ground. What God has given us, are we faithful with it? Randy Alcorn has, has a, written a lot about money and treasure. If you're interested in reading some good books, get a hold of some of Randy Alcorn's works on that. He's a, I think he's really been uh, anointed by God in this area. But he says, every day the person whose treasure is on earth is headed away from his treasure. Every day the person whose treasure is in heaven is headed toward his treasure. Whoever spends his life heading away from his treasure has reason to despair. Whoever spends his life headed toward his treasure has reason to rejoice. Where's your treasure? Are you heading toward it or away from it? Do you have reason to despair or reason to rejoice? Think about that. You see a lot of people who are older, and sometimes they're in despair. And you know why they're in despair? They're leaving everything they love. Everything they treasure, they're leaving it behind, and they're in despair. But you see some other people who what they value and treasure is a rich relationship with God and, and Jesus Christ and the treasure they've laid up in heaven. And as they're approaching the end of their life, they're rejoicing because they're going toward the things they're treasuring. They're not going uh, away from them. I don't want to be in despair when I get older. <laughs> I want to be able to rejoice. I want to be moving toward my treasure as my life uh, wanes here on earth. 
One other thought related to this, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but Jesus said that you and I will get secondary, uh, inv- you and I, our secondary involvement and influence in, a lot, in other people's lives and ministries will also bring reward to us. What I mean by that is if you give to a ministry or to a missionary, you're going to receive the same reward as those who are involved in that ministry. That's what Jesus said in um, Matthew 10, 40 to 42, Jesus said this, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. In other words, you get the same reward as the prophet. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive the righteous man's reward. Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cold cup of water to drink, I say to you, he won't lose his reward. So he's saying, look, if you receive a righteous man or a prophet, it means receive them in the sense of of helping them and ministering to them. He's saying, you're going to receive their reward. So when you support a church or a missionary or some ministry by giving them money, you share in the same reward that they receive. Now think about that. When that missionary or that minister receives his or her reward, you'll stand with them and participate in that reward. And he doesn't say here that you're going to get part of their reward. He'll say you will receive a prophet's reward. You'll receive a righteous man's reward. And what that pictures there is the partnership that we have together in ministry. People will often say kind things to me here at the church, and I always tell them, well, I'm glad you're here too, because if you're not here, I don't have anybody to talk to. I mean, I need people here to do what I do, right? I'm like, uh, I need you here for me to be able to carry out my ministry. And the money that you give to our church allows me and our other staff and the people here to carry out what God has called us to do. It's a partnership. And he says, when you partner with those who are in ministry, you're going to get the same reward they get. That's a sobering and a beautiful thing for us. Now, that means that we ought to be intentional and thoughtful about where we put our resources because wherever we plant those resources, we want to get a bountiful harvest from that. So support missionaries and ministries that are bearing fruit so that you can receive a full reward in what you share. So the first test question is going to be, how generous are we uh, with our money? Now, the second test question, or another one is, how do we spend our time? Uh, the oldest psalm in the, in, in the Psalter, in the, in the, in the uh, book of Psalms, is Psalm 90. It was written by Moses, the man of God. He was out there in the wilderness and uh, the people were dying. Uh, there probably were uh, um, you know, hundreds of people dying every day. That whole generation had to die off in that 40-year period. So Moses probably did more funerals than any man in history. But in Psalm, uh, Psalm 90, verse 12, in, in light of all the, 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 the passing away that was taking place, Moses said, So Lord, teach us to number our days that we can present to you a heart of wisdom. In kind of a similar vein, in, in, in Ephesians 5, 16, the Apostle Paul says, make the most of your time. Literally in the Greek, it's buy up the opportunities because the days are evil. None of us know how much time we have. We, we need to buy the opportunities that God gives to us. Now, we talked a minute ago about money, and I have no idea how much, any, how much money anybody here has. We all have different amounts of money. 
When it comes to time, we all have the same amount. We all get 168 hours a week. And a lot of that time is spent on necessary responsibilities and maybe some kind of mundane things of life. But the Lord expects a return on His investment of our time. God wants us to count our days, and He wants us to make our days count. You know, we all need recreation in life. We all need leisure. Uh, if, you, if you just work all the time, you're going to grind yourself down, and you're not going to be very effective. So we all need time away. We need leisure. We need recreation. But I think in our culture today, a lot of people, for them in their life, leisure and recreation is the end. It's not a means to an end. That is the end, just to kind of have leisure and recreation, just enjoy yourself and not have a worry in life. Look, it's important to have leisure and recreation, but that is a means to get recharged than to do the things that God has called us to do. And so don't allow leisure and just recreation and goofing off and just not doing anything with your time. Don't let that become the end for your life. Uh, Thomas Chalmers was a well-known Scottish preacher. He was in the Church of Scotland back in the late 1700s, early 1800s. When he was uh, in his earlier days, actually he was a pastor and he wasn't a believer in Christ. And so he wasted his time. He spent very little time studying uh, God's Word. He was a man without passion for God or for His Word. But he had uh, some things that took place in his life that really just leveled him. Um, he had an engagement that was broken off by a young woman that he loved. He had a serious illness. His brother died. He had two sisters who died of tuberculosis. Isn't it interesting how God often does use difficulty and tragedy in life to bring someone to himself? And so Thomas Chalmers was brought to an end of himself, and he put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ. And gone were those wasted, lazy days of his earlier ministry. Um, Christ and the gospel and the church became the all-consuming passions for Thomas Chalmers. And uh, everybody noticed the difference. And someone asked him once, they said, what's different now than later? What didn't you know when you were earlier that you know now? And stated like only an old Scottish preacher could put it, Chalmers said it like this, I had forgotten two magnitudes. I thought not of the littleness of time, and I recklessly thought not of the greatness of eternity. So look, when I was living like that, I, I wasn't thinking about the littleness of time and the greatness of eternity. And a lot of us, as we're getting older, we probably spend more time thinking about the littleness of time here on earth. But how much time do we spend thinking about the greatness of eternity? Time passes by every moment, and there's no way to retrieve it. We talk about saving time and making time and borrowing time, but you really you can't do any of those things. Time's precious. When it's gone, it's gone. Someone once said, remember when you kill time, it has no resurrection. There's no time for you and me to waste because once it's gone, we can't get it back. So you and I need to make sure that we're using the time that God has given to us wisely and not just wasting it. None of us here this morning know how much time we have personally. None of us know when we're going to die. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be next year, it could be 50 years from now. But none of us know. We don't know how much time we have personally. None of us know how much time we have prophetically. Because I believe that Jesus could come at any moment. 
And this event we're talking about, the judgment seat of Christ, will be a reality when we're caught up into His presence to be with Him. So let's think about the time that we use and we spend, and are we using it in ways that are advancing God's work? So let's count our days and make our days count. The third thing is how passionately we pray. Prayer is one of the most difficult things that we do as believers, yet I would say it's one of the most important things we do. In fact, it may be the most important thing that we do as believers because we're, we're calling forth the omnipotent hand of God into the affairs of our lives. A lot of people wonder about prayer sometimes. I know I've said this to you all before, but prayer is very simply asking God for something. That's what prayer is. All the the Greek words in the New Testament for prayer all carry the idea of asking for something. So prayer is nothing more, it's nothing less, it's nothing else than asking God for what you need. I was talking to somebody a while back, and they said, well, all I find myself doing when I go to God is just asking Him for stuff. I said, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Now, we praise God, and we worship God, and we do other things as we're in His presence. But when you get down to prayer, prayer means to ask God for things. And the reason we ask Him is because we need Him. We're dependent upon Him. And we go and ask God to to bring His hand into the affairs of our lives and to help us. You know, prayer can be perplexing and discouraging as well. I don't know about you, but sometimes I pray for something, and I pray for it, and I pray for it, and it seems like a good thing, and nothing seems to happen. And it's easy to get discouraged and perplexed in our prayer lives, but we need to remember the words of Jesus when He said, men ought always to pray and not to give up, not to lose heart. I read a quote here a few weeks ago I want to share with you. It's ministered to me, and I pray it'll help you as well. A man just said this very simply, God's no is better than anyone else's yes. That's powerful. God's no is better than anyone else's yes. God knows what we need, and He knows when we need it. And if we go to Him and pray, and it's good for us, God will give it to us, and He'll give it to us in His time. But prayer is hard, humbling work. Jesus said that if we pray with a pure heart, God will reward us. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go in your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. A passionate prayer life will be rewarded uh, by the Lord Jesus. And by the way, it's pretty rewarding to pray now, too. Prayer is evidence of trust in God, that we believe God hears us and He cares. It's also evidence of dependence on God, that I need God and I need His help in my life. So devoted prayer done in secret will be rewarded by the Lord when He comes. So make prayer a priority in your life. Have set times when you pray. And then pray throughout the day as Paul calls upon us to pray uh, without ceasing. God rewards passionate prayer. Another test question that's going to be on the exam when we face the Lord is how we ran the race that God has given to us. According to the Bible, all of us have a race to run. I don't have to run your race and you don't have to run my race. But we run the race with endurance that God has given to us and we need to stay in our lane 
In Hebrews 12.1, it calls upon us to run the race marked out for us. There's a race that God has given to us to stay in our lane. No two lanes are the same. We all, we all face our own challenges, but we need to find out what God has called me to do, what He wants me to do, and get in that lane and run in it with endurance. Uh, Kent Hughes says this. He says, we each have a specific course mapped out for us, and the course for each runner is unique. Some are relatively straight. Some are all turns. Some seem all uphill. Some are a flat hiking path. All are long. Some are longer. But each of us can finish the race marked out for us. I may not be able to finish your course. You may find mine impossible. But I can finish my race and you yours. Both of us can finish if we choose and if we rely, if we choose to and if we rely on Him who's our strength and our guide. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, don't you know that, that all who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you can win. Paul, when he was in his 60s, he said, I press on toward the prize, the reward that I'm going to get at the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One of these days, he says, God's going to call me upward, and I'm going to get the prize, but I'm, I'm pressing on in the race uh, that God has given me. And of course, Hebrews 12.1 says, we're to lay aside the encumbrances and the entanglements of sin that so easily hold us back in this life. And we need to, to look at our lives honestly and say, what are the things? Maybe, maybe they're not sinful things. Maybe they're just habits uh, that we do that are holding us back uh, from running the race the way the Lord wants us to. I like what uh, Joe Stoll says about running. He's a well-known pastor from years ago. He says, I have nothing against runners. Some of my best friends are addicted runners. Though I've never seen a runner smiling, apparently there must be something fulfilling about it. He said, I even tried it once, waiting for that surge of ecstasy that my friends told me I would experience, only to find the ecstasy came when I stopped running. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel about it, more or less. But, but he continued and he said this. He said, so whatever you think about running, it's important to note the Bible often speaks of living the Christian life as if we were running a race. Following Jesus is more than a leisurely stroll in the park. And the issue is not whether you run the race. When you become his follower, you're put in the race. The question is not will you run, but how will you run? So we're in the race. All of us are. And you need to find your lane. And if you say, you know, I don't really have a sense of calling in my life and a real sense of purpose. If you go to the Lord today and you honestly want to know what it is, I promise you God will show you. That's a prayer he'll answer. Because God wants you to know the answer to that much more than you want to know it. What do you want me to do, Lord? What's my lane? And get in it and be faithful to it and stay in it and persevere and don't quit until the Lord comes or he calls us home. Another test question is how hospitable we are to strangers. Uh, the New Testament word hospitality means a lover or a friend of strangers. And the New Testament talks a lot about hospitality. But hospitality can be a burden to open our heart and maybe our home to another person. It can be costly and messy and irritating and time-consuming. It requires uh, effort and planning. And here's the thing, it interrupts our privacy. <laughs> And I think more and more in this culture, we value that as people kind of move away into more isolated lives. But God wants us to move out of our comfort zone and be lovers and friends of strangers. 
In Poor Richard's Almanac, uh, Benjamin Franklin said that fish and guests are the same. They both start to stink after three days. And we've probably, both been, we've probably all been on both ends of that. Uh, but David uh, Donald Coggin, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said true hospitality is making people feel at home when you wish they were at home. <laughs> but every believer is charged in, in 1 Timothy 4.9 to be hospitable to one another without complaint. You and I are called upon to be friends and lovers of strangers. Uh, Jesus put it like this. He said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, he's talking here about heavenly rewards. Now, he's not saying you can never have your family or your friends over or never invite a rich person over. What he's saying is don't just only invite those people. Sure, you can get together with your family. What he's saying is care about other people and reach out to people who are in need and need a, need a friend in this life. Jesus said the most valuable kind of giving and entertaining is when we do it for people who can't respond in kind. And by the way, this is something every one of us can do. This is not some super thing, a spectacular, sensational activity that you know, only a few people can do. All of us can do it. And so to ask ourselves this morning, how hospitable am I? How much am I a lover and a friend to strangers? You know, I read something in the paper this morning that I still haven't gotten over it. I've been thinking about it all morning. Um, you might want to go look at it yourself. It's in the Oklahoma, and I don't remember what page it was on. But it was talking about the rise of depression and suicide in our country, especially in young people 18 to 25 years of age. It was meteoric in its, in its rise in recent days. And it's, it's hitting the group of people 18 to 25 hardest. And of course, they're trying to figure out what the reason is, and I think we probably have some insight into that. But part of it is, in our culture today, people are more lonely and isolated than ever before. Uh, they don't have people spending more time probably at your job than anything else you do. And the manner in which you fulfill those responsibilities in your job can bring rewards in the future. In Colossians 3, uh, beginning in verse 22, Paul wrote this, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You're going to get a reward for doing a good job in whatever God has given you to put your hand to. The time that you spend at your job is not inconsequential. And uh, by the way, I'm planning on in early November bringing a series, maybe three weeks, about work. Because I think in, in the church today, we don't have a very robust theology of work. A lot of people just see their job as just kind of something you do and go tolerate that doesn't really matter. It's kind of throwaway time. You know, that then it's the time with your family or in church or those are the things that really matter to God. That's not true. Um, how you do your work will be reviewed by the Lord and rewarded someday uh, where appropriate. 
Uh, there's a great story about this that I read years ago in the life of H.A. Ironside. He was known as Harry Ironside, a great preacher. He's ministered to me greatly through his writings. When he was a young man, he worked for a shoe repairman, a guy that made shoes and repaired shoes named Dan McKay. And Ironside's job as a young man there working all day was getting these big pieces of leather that had been soaked in water and pounding the water out of them because they lasted longer if you pounded the water out after they were soaked. So he just in there pounding these hides all day long to make soles for shoes. Well, one day on a break, he was walking down the street and saw the competitor down the road, and he was putting wet sole, wet leather on the soles of shoes. And he said, he asked him, well, why are you doing that? And he said, well, why aren't you pounding the water out first? And he said, well, they come back all the quicker that way, Sonny. And so uh, Ironside went back and asked Dan McKay, he says, well, why are we sitting here beating the, you know, why am I beating the tar out of these, uh, uh, you know, hides here? Why don't we just put them on there when they're wet? And he said, Dan McKay said this to him. He said, Harry, I don't cobble shoes just for the money I get from my customers. I'm doing this for the glory of God. I expect to see every shoe I ever repaired in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. And I don't want the Lord to say to me on that day, Dan, this was a poor job. You didn't do your best here. I want him to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he said, Dan McKay went on and explained to him that how some men are called to preach, that he believed he was called by God to fix shoes. And that as he did this, he believed he could be a testimony for God. And reflecting years later on this, H.A. Ironside said, it was a lesson I've never been able to forget. Often when I've been tempted to carelessness and slipshod effort, I've thought of dear, devoted Dan McKay. And it stirred me to seek to do all I can for the one who did all uh, to redeem me. Not a beautiful picture, though. He expected to see every pair of shoes he ever fixed in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, for you to think about your job, you're going to give an account for your work someday. Were you diligent? Were you on time? Or were you a, did you have a good attitude? Did, did you get along with other people there to create a, a good environment for work to be done? Thinking about this idea of stuff being piled there in the middle, you know, I'm a pastor, and um, Someday it'll be when I stand before the judgment seat, every sermon I've ever preached in a big pile at the judgment seat. But you think about your work. Maybe you're an attorney or a mechanic or an electrician. Maybe you're a geologist, an IT expert, a housewife. Maybe you're a car mechanic. Whatever it is you do, expect to see all that work that you've done piled there um, at the judgment seat of Christ someday. It may be legal briefs or medical records. I mean, it may be laundry. <laughs> And maybe computer programs or repaired automobiles or whatever it is, but whatever you do, make sure you're going to be happy to see it again someday in the presence of your master. Because <laughs> we're going to see it again there someday as our life uh, before the Lord um, is reviewed. So how you do your work on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday of this week will determine the nature of your work forever in heaven as you labor for the Lord. One final thing, and we'll just spend a moment on this and we'll close. Uh, the seventh one here is how humble we are. Uh, Jesus said that humility is going to be greatly rewarded. What did Jesus say? Matthew 18, verse 4, whoever humbles himself as this child, he's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. God is going to reward humility. Now, humility is a very difficult, very elusive virtue to have in life. 
And people will often ask, well, how do you get humility? Well, the only way to get humility is to see the, the majesty, the greatness, the infinity of God compared to who we are. We don't get humility by thinking about being humble. We get humility by thinking about who God is and seeing ourselves uh, in light of Him. When you stand next to the greatness of God, you just see yourself in your, in your true light. So humility comes from spending time in the Bible and meditating upon who God is. Uh, John Flavel, the old Puritan, said, they that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves can't be proud. Jesus said about Jesus, he must increase, and I must decrease. You can't just sit around thinking about yourself decreasing, but as he increases, you're just going to naturally or supernaturally decrease. Um, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less, spending time thinking about the greatness of God. And really, humility ultimately comes by spending time at the cross of Christ. There's an old saying that, you know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come there on level ground, whoever we are how much money we have, how smart we are. We all come to that level ground at the foot of the cross. And really, no person is ever humble until they come to the foot of the cross. That's the, the first act of humility of every human being. We come and realize that in ourselves we're lost, we're desperate. We have nothing to offer God but our sin. And we come to Him, and we take that free gift of eternal life that He gives to us. And for the first time in our life, we're put into proper relation to God and who He is. And we have the opportunity to grow then in humility. And if you've never come to the foot of the cross for the first time, you need to do that this morning. You need to take Jesus to be your Savior. Uh, you're in, in, in far worse condition than you could ever, ever imagine apart from Him. He's the only one who can wash away your sins. He's the only one who can give you life. He's the only one that can bring you to heaven. And if you've never trusted in him, that's what you need to do. Take that first act of humility, come to the cross, to the foot of the cross. Say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. And I know that I need a Savior. And I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior, the sinless one who died for me. And trust in him and take Christ to be your Savior. When you do that, you'll be humbled for the first time in your life as a creature before your Creator. And then you have the opportunity in your life to, to, to gain more and more a heart of humility before the Lord. So I pray that every one of us here will pursue that, will per pursue a heart of humility before God. Paul said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only boast that we have. It's the only boast any of us have is in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done for us. Look, the final exam is coming. And if you know the Lord, you're going to be there, and I'm going to be there. You can't call in sick. You don't get to take the exam over again. There's no second chance. There's no makeup test. There's no cheat sheet. There's no grading on the curve. You just get one shot, and then we have to stand before him and be evaluated. And now's the opportunity for you and for me to prepare and to get ready. And you've got the questions there before you this morning. We looked at some of the other ones last time. So don't wait until the last minute to cram for the test. Start now. Uh, you and I have no excuse. And again, these aren't some spectacular, sensational things that only a few people can do. These are seven things every one of us can start doing today or tomorrow. 
It's how generous we are, how we spend our time, how we run the race God's given us, how passionately we pray. It's hospitality. It's our vocation or our job. It's, it's humility. These are things that all of us can do every day by God's strength and God's help if we'll submit ourselves to Him. And God wants you to do well on the final exam. God is for you. So let's commit to do all we can to ace the test, if you will, to get an A someday. And we can hear those words, well done, uh, thou good and faithful servant. Uh, Let's live today in light of that day when we're going to stand before the Lord. And we want to do all of this not so we can receive the A and hear those words, but so God can be glorified uh, through our lives because that's why we exist, to bring honor and glory to his name. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that our salvation is not based on what we do for Jesus, but it's based on what Jesus does for us. We thank you for that finished work that Christ accomplished on the cross. With all who come to him, He says, I'll never cast you out. If you're here this morning, you've never come to Jesus Christ, come to him. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You need him. Come to him this morning and trust in him and take him to be your savior. And Father, for those of us who know you, may we take seriously what we've talked about here today. That day's coming, whether we believe it or not, whether we think about it or not, it's coming. It's approaching. Help us to be ready, Lord. Help us to be moving toward our treasure, all the things we love and value most, and not away from it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here again, and uh, we pray that uh, you've uh, been blessed by your time with us. If you go out these doors, the left side of the lobby, there's a welcome center there, and there's some folks there that love to give you some more information about our church. Um, I'll be down front after the service. Our elders who are present uh, will be down front as well with me, and we'd love the opportunity to get acquainted with you. Um, We'd love to pray with you if you have a prayer need. Um, You may have something you want to share with us, uh, a praise. We'd love to hear that as well. So uh, feel free to come down and see us. Well, let's uh, bow our heads now uh, for the benediction as we leave here with God's blessing upon us. Father, thank you for your word that we've heard this morning. We pray that we'd leave here and be doers of that word and not just hearers. We pray as we go from here today that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will go with us all. And all God's people said, amen.